What were the real reasons for the creation of NATO? Why would an ostensibly defensive military body be expanding its theater of operations beyond the North Atlantic region and increasing its expenditures nearly three decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union? Was NATO the inevitable outcome of three decades of Western imperialist aggression? Is there a fundamental difference between Western interference in the Global South countries and that of the Russians and Chinese? On this week's Global Research News Hour, on the occasion of a week marking the 70th anniversary of the signing of the North Atlantic Treaty, we take a closer look at this hostile military alliance and how it and the Western imperialist impulse has impacted global economics and global affairs. Our guests for the hour are award-winning geopolitical analyst, scholar, and author Mahdi Darius Nazamroya and journalist, novelist, and war correspondent Andre Vilchik. On this week's program, NATO at 70, Global Enforcers of Western Imperialism. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 5th, 2019. I'm series host and producer Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabe Gakin, the homeland of the Métis Nation and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. We seek to provide you with access to analysis of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Most Venezuelans want Bolivarian social democracy preserved and protected. They oppose foreign intervention in any form, overwhelmingly against it militarily. On Monday, Venezuelan Chief Supreme Court Justice Mikel Moreno called on the nation's constituent assembly to strip Guaido of parliamentary immunity for flouting a high court order, banning his foreign travel without court permission, illicit financial activities, inciting street violence, and other offenses. Established by national referendum to revise or rewrite Venezuela's constitution, restore and maintain order, as well as serving everyone in the country equitably, the Constituent Assembly is the Bolivarian Republic's highest legal authority. According to Article 349 of Venezuela's constitution, no other power can, quote, in any way impede the decisions of the National Constituent Assembly, unquote. Not the President, National Assembly legislators, and Supreme Court justices. That comes from the article, U.S. Puppet Guaido Stripped of Immunity by Stephen Ledman, posted April 3rd. Even between Merkel and Macron, there seems to be notable frictions surrounding energy independence. However, in spite of these apparent divergences, the prevailing theme in the final analysis is that of wishing to escape Washington's suffocating dominance in favor of a greater participation in the concept of a multipolar world. No European capital, whether it be Paris, Rome, Berlin, or London, intends to break the Atlantic Pact with Washington. This is confirmed at every possible formal occasion. 
However, as Beijing becomes more and more central to questions concerning technology or the supply of liquid capital for investments or business expansion, the changes to the global order seem unstoppable. That comes from the article, Belt and Road Initiative in Full Swing in Europe, by Federico Pieraccini, posted April 3rd, originally published at Strategic Culture Foundation. According to the state's website, the Riot Boosting Act is a result of Governor Christy Nome's discussions with TransCanada, the company that is set to build and operate the Keystone XL pipeline and other stakeholders. Notably, the state did not meet with Native American tribes or environmental groups. This comes across loud and clear in the final law, which not only gives the state the authority to sue anti-pipeline groups and activists, but also gives third parties, including TransCanada, the ability to join in. Further, the money seized from protesters through these lawsuits can be used to fund the very thing they are protesting, thereby giving the company an added financial incentive to go after pipeline protesters. If this attack on protest sounds eerily familiar, that's because it is. That comes from the article, the South Dakota legislature has invented a new legal term to target pipeline protesters by Andrew Malone and Vera Eidelman, posted April 3rd, originally published on the ACLU's website. But there is something fishy here. If the 400-page report by the Department of Justice's special counsel, Robert Mueller, about Donald Trump cheating and obstructing justice in his relations with Russia really does contain positive conclusions about the current occupant of the White House, his family, and associates, don't you think the tandem trump bar would have rushed to make it public? At the very least, wouldn't they have delivered copies of the full report to Congress? Why are they willing to fight to keep it secret from the elected Congress. The only logical answer is that the complete Mueller report contains very damaging material about Trump, his family, and his administration, and William Barr does not want Americans to see it. That comes from the article, Trump Barr's Manipulation of the Special Counsel Robert Mueller Report of March 22, 2019, The Political Cover-Up of the Century, by Professor Rodrigue Tremblay, posted April 2nd. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Seventy years ago, on April 4, 1949, Canada, the United States, and ten European nations signed the North Atlantic Treaty, otherwise known as the Washington Treaty, which cleared the legal path for the historic military alliance known as NATO. While NATO foreign ministers gather in Washington this week to commemorate the occasion and set the agenda going into the future, there's been concern and criticism from citizens within and outside NATO countries as to what the NATO agenda is really all about. Is it about keeping the peace, or is it a force of aggression in the service of economic elites? To try to address some of those concerns, we're joined by Mahdi Nazamroya, an award-winning author and geopolitical analyst. Mahdi Darius Nazamroya is the author of The Globalization of NATO by Clarity 
Press. He's also contributed to several other books ranging from cultural critique to international relations. He's a sociologist and research associate at the Center for Research on Globalization. Welcome back to the show, Mahdi. Thank you for having me. In your estimation, what were the true reasons for creating NATO? What happened uh, towards the end of World War II, after 1945, uh, is that the populations in Western European countries were uh, radicalized to an extent and, uh, and felt disenfranchised to an extent and also were uh, fed up with the status quo, the status quo that had taken them, to, them into the war. Uh, they had also... Uh, when I meant by the word radicalized, I mean that they have paradigm shifts in the way governance should take place in their Western European states and societies. Uh, so, for example, in the United Kingdom of Great Britain uh, and, and uh, Northern Ireland, the U UK, um, what happened was um, many of the people were drifting towards these leftist ideas of socialism I, either as uh, socialists, social democrats, uh, uh, and, and communists included in that category. Uh, so they had drifted towards the, these, these perspectives. And uh, the United States did not want, uh, as well as, as the elites in these Western European countries, didn't want uh, these countries to go in that direction. Uh, it was, it, it's not just a matter of ideology. Uh, at the same time, the United States and Western European elites in countries like Britain and France uh, also uh, were thinking in context of geopolitics. So geopolitically speaking, they also didn't want these countries to orbit towards uh, the Soviet Union, towards uh, Moscow. So uh, this was one of the reasons the United States took the opportunity to help uh, weave uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, which brought together Canada, the United States, and a few uh, um, Western European countries such as Belgium, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, uh, Britain, uh, France. So, uh, uh, so what happened is, the United States basically used the North Atlantic Treaty, or the Washington Treaty, to legitimize its post-1945 occupation of Western Europe. Uh, since NATO was created, of course, there's an expansion process that took place. Uh, there's been over five expansions throughout the years since 1945. And so the alliance... Uh, basically started expanding eastward from its original uh, uh, position in Western Europe. There's also been sis, uh, sister organizations like CETO uh, in the southeast and, and CENTO in the, in the Middle East. Uh, can you maybe do, just maybe, is that sort of an expansion of, of this geopolitical dynamic that you're, uh, you're mentioning? Well, during the Cold War, the United States... Uh, uh, the Atlanticists in the United States or the, the um, foreign policy elite, the foreign policy mandarins, uh, they uh, w 
we're thinking of containment. Uh, this containment theory was based on U.S. Uh, uh, the U.S. perspective before the end of World War II. So the perspective was that the United States needs to place itself within uh, Europe and Asia. And the reason was uh, that the United States, under, the, um, under theories uh, such as um, uh, Nicholas Spikeman, the Dutch-American uh, scholar's theory of uh, the Rimland, which is... Um, uh, Premised off er, the earlier theories of um, of uh, uh, Mackinder's heartland in, in Europe and Asia, or Eurasia, because they're really physically one continent. Europe and Asia are really one continent. It's only politically that we consider them two separate continents. So I'll, I'll use the term Eurasia now. Uh, they believe that the United States needs to place itself physically in Eurasia. So NATO is actually one of those things. So you have these American bases in Germany, Italy that popped up, Britain uh, after World War II, and again, as I said, it's to legitimize the post-1945 U.S. occupation of European territories after the war, because uh, the United States was one of the main victors. Um, uh, so to follow on this theory, uh, a chain of alliances was created around the United States, which encircled uh, the Soviet Union, and later uh, encircled what is to be uh, the People's Republic of China. Because in, uh, in, in the late 1950s, uh, Chairman Mao and the Communist Party of China uh, uh, take over, the, and China becomes the People's Republic of China, and the nationalists are sent to Taiwan. And uh, so... CETO, which is the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, uh, was made to encircle China. Now, um, CENTO, which is the Central Treaty Organization, it was also called the Middle East, uh, it had another name uh, based on the Middle East, um, also called the Baghdad Pact, because the agreement was signed in Baghdad, uh, had the United States as, a, as an associate member, but was uh, consisted of Britain, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, uh, Pakistan. So, it, and that was made to um, that was made to create uh, a, a barrier to the Soviet Union uh, in West Asia, basically. And if you look at NATO, CENTO, and CETO, they have several common members. For example, France. And Pakistan were both members of the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization, uh, while France was also a member of uh, NATO, and Pakistan was a member of CENTO, the Central Treaty Organization. Uh, the United Kingdom was a member of all three alliances. Um, Turkey was a member of the Central Treaty Organization and a member of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. So you can see that uh, oh, these three alliances created, um, uh, encircled two of the United States' main rivals during what is the Cold War period. Uh, again, the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China.
the two red giants of Eurasia. There's also the uh, the aspect of uh, the way NATO seems to enforce certain kinds of uh, of economic uh, modes of organization. Uh, you know, sort of keeping certain countries in line with the, the Bretton Woods Washington consensus and uh, and and so on. Uh, could, could you speak to maybe some examples of how that's played out? Well. Uh, when NATO was expanding in Europe to at the end of the Cold War, you know, one of their goals was market democracy, just a new term for capitalism and for the Washington consensus. Uh, yes, uh, I would say that we would, we could uh, characterize uh, NATO as uh, expansion of the United States' economic uh, sphere, I, I would actually even point out today in contemporary times, in the years 2018 and 2019, it has become even more clear that economics is tied to the agenda because the United States is heavily pressuring uh, its allies under the Trump administration to buy American weapons. And when, they, when President Donald Trump and his administration in Washington, uh, demand that other NATO allies of the United States spend more on uh, military, on their, spend more for NATO, have higher budgets. What the one of the main things they are saying is you have to buy more weapons from the United States' military-industrial complex. So buy more uh, jets from us, buy more Patriot missiles from us buy more military hardware from us uh, and our our big uh, our big military uh, corporations so there that's one of the economic a- angles for sure so uh, what do you make of this uh, decision by Turkey recently to want to purchase Russian s400 anti-missile system rather than the uh, the Patriots from the US that seems to be Turkey is a NATO ally and so uh, how, how do you how does that uh, what does that speak to in terms of the that modus operandi of, of NATO? Well, uh, I would point out two things. First, I, I'd like to just contextually uh, let the audience know that Turkey is one of the major NATO allies. It's one of the largest and strongest military forces within the alliance. So that's the first thing. But in terms of the S-400 deal between Moscow and Ankara, between uh, the Turkish and Russian governments, I would point out, first of all, that Turkey's not the first NATO country to have the S-400. Some other NATO members have it. Um, uh, then, at the same time, I would point out that Turkey's not the first NATO member to also buy military hardware from the Russians at all. So there's a bit of politics tied to this, and of course, Going back to the economics, the United States wants to uh, up its sales of military hardware, and that's why I want Turkey to buy from the United States instead of from Russia. It doesn't want uh, any momentum to be given to a program where the the Russian military industrial complex, uh, specifically the arm, Russian arms companies, are uh, getting a... Uh, um, getting any more sales in the world. They're global competitors in that perspective. But uh, another thing I want to point out is increasingly we see the United States doesn't believe any of its own jargon, any of its own statements through its actions. We can see this. 
about any fair and free competition. So all that capital, all those type of capitalist uh, uh, statements about free and fair competition. When it comes down to it, the United States doesn't believe that. It doesn't believe free and fair competition at all. It actually believes in uh, using politics and governance and demands uh, to have unequal advantage. So that's what the United States has been doing, even with non-NATO members. So, for example, uh, non-NATO countries like Iraq wanted to buy helicopters and Afghanistan from Russia. The United States, as much as it could, obscured this. So the United States increasingly... Uh, is showing the rest of the world. I mean, there's many examples of this now, uh, that it does not believe even fair competition at all, like for fair and free competition. It believes in having, it believes in actually having unfair advantages. And in fact, the trade war with China and the unilateralist steps being taken by the Trump administration actually prove this. The trade agreements it wants to have are unfair. And that's why the United States wants to walk out on many of the multilateral trade agreements it set up itself, because other countries have learned to play the game, and it wants to renegotiate all types of international, multilateral, or even bilateral trade agreements, so it can reset, press a reset button with giving itself new unfair advantages. Mm. And that's why uh, in the World Trade Center, the United States has blocked judges from coming in, to rule on whether the Chinese, uh, U.S., the Sino-American uh, trade disagreement, they've actually blocked, they have blocked uh, uh, judges from ruling on it. They've been hold, like, and they've said if they rule against us uh, at the time, this is, this is, uh, I'm speaking about last year, uh, we'll leave the World Trade Organization. In fact, they've said that uh, the tariffs and their arguments uh, the, the way they rationalize it with the World Trade Organization is to say that um, the Chinese uh, are socialist and we're going to keep the uh, tariffs. We're going to keep tariffs on them, and uh, the Europeans, European Union has also used this, and this is why they've used this to maintain a level of tariffs. Because if they drop the tariffs under the, the agreements of the World Trade Organization they have with China many of their domestic corporations will be swept because of Chinese goods coming into the country, into the markets, which are much cheaper, sometimes better, not all the time, or of equal uh, quality, but, again, cheaper. And they would be, sw- they would be uh, American corporations, as well as co- corporations in the EU, would more or less suffer and, and eventually go bankrupt because they can't compete against the Chinese. Mahdi, returning the, the focus to NATO, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, the, the idea that the United, that Soviet Union or Russia was a credible threat, that, 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 that whole rationale was gone, and they switched the focus to humanitarian intervention, and so we had that NATO assault on Yugoslavia in 1999. Uh, where basically they were using these elite weapons, uh, weapons that were conceived and sold uh, and marketed as uh, useful against the Soviets, the B-2 bomber and uh, you know, depleted uranium, graphite bombs and other such things and sophisticated weaponry. And they're using it ostensibly to stop ethnic cleansing, you know, kind of like using dynamite to kill a mosquito. What do you think of this idea that 
uh, as a motivation that uh, to keep the defense industry happy, you needed to, to keep to keep priming that pump of of military investment uh, in in these defense contracts. That uh, you need to have some kind of a rationale that uh, that's going to justify. Because the B two bomber, for instance, I don't think that was conceived to be used against you know to stop the uh, ethnic cleansing. So, so what about that kind of cynical? Uh, aspect of, 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 of continuing the invest and maintaining investment in the defense industry? So uh, two things we should mention, I think, that are key. One is the militarization of other aspects of, of uh, international relations and, I guess, daily life in, in uh, other countries. That's what took place, is militarization in that, uh, in that context. The other one was new pretexts to continue military operations. So humanitarian um, intervention, uh, peacekeeping, also international policing and taxing, for example, carrying African Union troops um, into countries like Sudan, uh, uh, international policing such as in Eastern Europe, marshalling the air, uh, anti-piracy work, such as off the coast of Africa and in the uh, uh, Gulf of Aden between Yemen and uh, Somalia. Uh, and also, uh, I should mention very importantly, NATO left its original self-imposed or self-described sphere of responsibility, which was basically Europe and the North Atlantic. So in the 1990s, when uh, the United States uh, went into Iraq to supposedly liberate Kuwait. It actually used uh, NATO tactics, and its allies worked within the framework of what a NATO offensive would be. And that's when uh, policy analysts and military specialists in the United States eyes opened, and they were looking at Yugoslavia eventually. And I should mention that Yugoslavia was uh, an independent country outside of the orbit of the United States, uh, as well as even the Soviet Union, which, uh, as an independent actor, had left an alternative in Europe. So uh, disintegrating it was very uh, um, desired, and before... The events that took place in the former Yugoslavia, U.S. policy analysts had already outlined how the country needs to be taken apart and how um, the United States cannot invade immediately because they would unite all the people of the former Yugoslavia, regardless of what their ethnicity was, whether they were Slovenians, Croats, Bosniaks, Serbs, uh, Montenegrins or Macedonians or Albanians, they would be united and they would be against any large military in invasion of the country. Okay. So, I mean, the U.S. had a hand in helping disintegrate that country, and we can see what happened in countries like Bosnia, where the actual functional de jure legal head of the country, or sorry, I would say also de facto, as well as de jure, was the high representative from the European Union, uh, the, his dep the deputy would be appointed from the United States, 
the head of the Bosnian bank by by law in Bosnia had to be a non-Bosnian picked by the European Union and and the United States. So I mean, that's a colony, basically. Yeah. You know, it turned it basically uh, used uh, humanitarian pretexts to uh, gut the former Yugoslavia. Uh, so the the Federation of the Southern Slavs was gutted, and um, uh, from there on, we see how humanitarian intervention was really has really been pushed forward by NATO. So they've tried to apply it in uh, Sudan. They've also used it. Uh, the last example is in 2011 in the Libyan Arab Jamaria, where regime change took place in Tripoli against the, the government of uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Yeah. Mahdi, I think we're going to have to leave it there, but I, I thank you once again. It's great to have you on the show and uh, look forward to uh, more of your articles. So uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with a sociologist and a research associate with the Center for Research on Globalization and the author of The Globalization of NATO, Mahdi Darius Nazamroya. He joined us from Toronto. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Born in Leningrad, what is now referred to as St. Petersburg, Andrei Vulchik is a philosopher, novelist, filmmaker, and investigative journalist. He grew up in the former Czechoslovakia and has since visited 145 countries. His books and films, which include the 2015 volume Exposing the Lies of Empire, generally center on Western imperialism and Western expansionism and their adverse effects on domestic populations around the world. Volchek presently resides in East Asia and the Middle East. He visited the cities of Regina and Winnipeg in Canada on the week corresponding with the 70th anniversary of NATO, where he spoke at anti-NATO events hosted by local peace groups. I had a chance to interview Mr. Volchek in person during a car ride to Winnipeg's Richardson International Airport and probe his views about NATO and about Western imperialist tradition generally. Just a warning to listeners, there are some graphic descriptions in the following segment. Listener discretion is advised. But given that, you know, there's been that history of Western Empire and a resistance, was NATO an inevitable, or something like it, inevitable in that context? Or, or was it some sort of an accident of history? What are your thoughts about that? Well, uh, actually, no accident of history. Uh, what happened is that... Uh, uh, there were several imperialist powers after the Second World War, and they just consolidated uh, into this North Atlantic Treaty, which was at the beginning supposed to uh, uh, so-called protect the West and the rest of the world, as they were calling it, free world against uh, us bad guys, the Soviets, the, the Eastern Communist bloc. And... Uh, of course, it was never supposed to be a defensive uh, coalition. It was uh, uh, acting as extremely aggressive uh, uh, organization, and uh, it is uh, acting as such until now. 
Although Soviet Union is no more, I think temporarily it's no more. Uh, it is it, uh, the NATO still exists, uh, and it uh, intimidates uh, countries. It uh, bullies countries. It overthrows governments, and it also occupies uh, several uh, previously proud and independent nations. Now. I know that you you were born in, in Leningrad, what's now called St. Petersburg. You grew up in Czechoslovakia. Uh, and you, you've written in your book, Exposing the Lies of Empire, about this tendency of uh, a, a lot of these countries that have been exposed to uh, you know, imperial oppression, and yet they seem to admire and even emulate these Western powers. You yourself grew up uh, looking up to the West. So if if I may, uh, how how do you understand that? What is your understanding of this tendency uh, for people under the yoke to lick the hand that beats them? Well, um, I recently wrote uh, an essay on this topic and it is actually a very dangerous trend. I see it everywhere in the world, and I lived on all continents uh, of the world, e- even continents that were uh, absolutely devastated by the West, like Africa. Uh, the trend is that uh, um, many people in uh, previously occupied nations or, or nations that are until now um could be described as client states have some soft spot uh, at the best and or are fully submissive uh, at the at worst to the uh, to the western culture which uh, devastated them for so many decades and centuries um Correctly, you pointed out, I was born in Leningrad. I, I lived there for some time as a child, but then I grew up in Czechoslovakia, which used to be Czechoslovakia, and now it's Czech Republic. Uh, we were under constant bombardment of the Western media. Uh, there was BBC, there was Voice of America, there was uh, Radio Free Europe, uh, in all imaginable local languages, Czech, Russian, uh, of course, English. Uh, there were uh, German television station beaming uh, from across the border from Bavaria because uh, I was growing up in Pilsen, which was uh, literally 50 kilometers from the border. So uh, what they created uh, was this uh, uh, atmosphere that in order to be young and cool and really uh, uh, up to the... Uh, times you had to follow western trends you had to uh, consider communism uh, and uh, non-western way of life as boring Uh, many people literally sold the ideas of internationalism for a pair of designer jeans and it was uh, unfortunately happening also in the Soviet Union at the end of the era during the Gorbachev uh, period. People were totally hooked on the on the Western propaganda. They uh, were literally spitting at their soldiers who went uh, to perform their internationalist duty in Afghanistan. So uh, the Western media had tremendous has tremendous uh, impact on lives of the people. 
it uh, actually the Western propaganda, not only media, because uh, uh, propaganda includes both media and uh, so-called uh, academia or education system. So unfortunately, uh, this is how uh, both. Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia decomposed because or Eastern Bloc decomposed under the tremendous pressure of the of the Western propaganda. That's why, if we are going to ever, if we are really fighting against Western imperialism, the main front is ideological front. That speaks to this idea of, of storytelling, the, the stories that we tell that informs our identity and informs our, our sense of community and the nation. Um, could you maybe speak about maybe some of the more profound examples of, of that uh, replacement that, that, that takes place that, that's really working to undermine that tendency to be able to resist uh, that foreign uh, control? Well, the stories uh, are uh, uh, integral part of the human, uh, both memory and uh, also development. Locally grown uh, uh, stories uh, and locally uh, created narrative uh, is one of the best uh, ways how to uh, resist uh, uh, implanted stories and implanted narrative from the from the West. What is West really trying to do? It's uh, uh, it's trying to uh, uh, make everything uniformed and uniformed uh, according to its own gospel. So uh, the entire world is supposed to see uh, what is occurring on all continents uh, through the eyes of the. Western uh, culture and the Western propaganda. So to resist this, we have to read uh, our own writers. We have to uh, create alternative media. We have to uh, actually uh, describe the world from our own perspective. And that's actually what is happening. That's why I'm very optimistic, because I think that uh, uh, this... uh, uniformed Western uh, uh, narrative is dying because people start to wake up uh, in uh, Russia, in China, in uh, uh, many parts of Asia and uh, Middle East, uh, Africa, Latin America. They are talking their own, uh, they're speaking their own language and in the meantime they are interacting uh, between each other, this famous South-South cooperation. So uh, before everything had to go through the centers of, uh, like, uh, through the hubs like London, New York, Paris, Miami, Los Angeles, uh, this is changing. People do start to interact and there is a much greater uh, exchange of ideas directly between, let's say, China and Africa, uh, Russia and the Middle East. So I'm very optimistic. This is part of uh, the resistance, and uh, it is very successful resistance. Now, th- there is uh, there are modes of uh, <laughs> asserting imperial control that are, are kind of sophisticated, and it, it seems to me that one of them is the ability to use ethnic identities as ways of dividing. Uh, we saw that in, in happening in in, Yugos- in the former Yugoslavia, for example. C- could you uh, maybe? 
give us a little bit more of your own insights uh, into how that uh, mechanism is being used to to further the aims of empire? Yes, the the ethnics and religion. Let's not forget religions. And these are two weapons that the West is using. Basically, it, it is a, uh, when it comes to ethnic uh, ethnicity, it's an old divide and rule British uh, uh, concept, uh, and we saw it uh, at the end of uh, uh, British uh, rule in uh, uh, subcontinent with, with horrible, of course, consequences. Uh, partition and so on uh, but it's used uh, everywhere else uh, where the empire gets involved religion is even more powerful sort the west is basically creating and uh, up- upholding the most extreme types of religions and uh, it injects religions uh, uh, to uh, places which are supposed to be destabilized. We saw it in Afghanistan, we see it uh, now almost everywhere in the world. For instance, Syria used to be a secular uh, country, but uh, because of the allies of the West, uh, Qataris, Saudis, and to some extent Turks, uh, actually injected uh, jihadi cadres to the uh, to this secular nation, uh, Syria changed uh, dramatically during the uh, civil war, and now uh, it is not. It has nothing to do with the some kind of opposition against Assad. It's basically fighting terrorism. Syria is fighting terrorism that was implanted by the West, which claims to be secular. We see this uh, spread of uh, extreme religious uh, forms uh, in many places uh, of Southeast Asia, uh, Africa, and elsewhere. And it can be Islam, but it, it, it can also be Christianity, extreme forms of Christianity, like in Congo, uh, DRC, or it can be uh, extreme Buddhism. Uh, we see... Uh, uh, this divisive policy uh, applied to uh, almost every nation that the West uh, uh, wants to antagonize or which it occupies, which leads to perpetual wars, perpetual conflicts. Uh, so uh, Afghanistan, the country which was uh, moving into the secular direction under uh, Soviet uh, era and also under uh, Dr. Najibullah uh, is now one of the most extremist countries on earth. Uh, uh, Libya, uh, again, relatively uh, pan-African and relatively secular, is now uh, uh, torn by religious uh, strifes. So almost anywhere where the West comes, uh, it leaves this... uh, uh, divisive, uh, uh, this leaves divisions, uh, uh, both ethnic and uh, especially religious. Now, my reading of what uh, what I've heard from you thus far is that you seem to, you just mentioned Pan Africanism and the, these sorts of movements and, and ideological alternatives to this sort of Western style capitalism that that's been put in place as. Um, 
essentially the driving force behind a lot of these invasions. And, and you seem to be more dismissive of issues around oil and gas, not to say that they're completely uh, aside, but uh, the Carter um, Doctrine states that oil is an important source of strategic strength. Uh, you, you, if you want to have an effective military, you, you got to be able to control the oil. So, you know, in light of those realities, is there? Do you have occasion to maybe reconsider that uh, that these basic strategic incentives are are a significant factor as well? Oil was always a significant factor. Uh, other natural resources uh, uh, were as well. Uh, that's why uh, places like the Democratic Republic of Congo, DRC, uh, had been plundered uh, on behalf of the Western uh, Empire by Rwanda and Uganda. That's why uh, Indonesia uh, uh, experienced this horrible coup in 1965. Uh, but uh, what I'm saying in uh, much of my writing is that uh, the West reached an extremely fundamentalist level uh, culturally. It believes in its own exceptionalism. It's uh, uh, looking at the world uh, as uh, something that has to be fully controlled. Uh, and uh, it is not only politically, it's also uh, ideologically and culturally and in many other ways. Uh, so uh, oil, uh, supply of oil is already secured. Uh, trillions of dollars are being made by, the, by individuals and by capitalist uh, companies in the West. So uh, it is not uh, anymore only about natural resources or profits. It is much more about uh, total control of the of the world, and uh, that's how I see it uh, uh, in uh, almost all parts of the world where the West is involved. So there are countries, of course, that are strategically very important uh, uh, in terms of natural resources: uh, uh, Congo, Indonesia, uh, Saudi Arabia, but also uh, Iraq uh, and Venezuela. But uh, there are also uh, countries where the West is destabilizing governments uh, strictly on an uh, uh, ideological basis. What follows is a short excerpt from Mr. Volchuk's April 3rd talk at the University of Manitoba. It includes a graphic description of extreme misogynistic violence by the West's Rwandan allies. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Rwanda gangs, it's not that like they just rape her, they, they are looking for diamonds, so they cut off her vagina and her mouth, face, and she's alive, they don't even bother to kill her, because it's like too much work, they just cut everything of hers uh, open while she's dying in agony to look for if she has diamonds on her, it's really horrible there. So that's Rwanda, uh, the great ally of the West. You've seen a lot of uh, brutality and uh, obscenities in the course of your travels to, what, 150 countries around the world. Why isn't it enough to just wipe out an alternative uh, you know, economic perspective or, or secure a, a strategic resource? Why the barbarity? 
Well, I think that uh, what is happening to the Western civilization is uh, cannot be explained uh, anymore by uh, uh, economical or uh, philosophical analysis. I think the West uh, reached the level when uh, only psychiatric uh, treatment uh, could help. I mean, it is uh, suffering from uh, sadistic syndrome, and it does exist, actually. There is a psychiatric definition of of that uh, a severe uh, a sadistic syndrome. I, again, I uh, described this in several of my uh, essays, and I'm serious. Uh, if you look at uh, at least 500 last years of barbarity that uh, the West unleashed against the rest of the world, uh, there can be no uh, other explanation. Uh, there are no countries and no parts of the world uh, which would... Uh, show such um, uh, mercilessness such a, such a barbarity uh, as the as the west and almost all western countries uh, we are talking not only about united kingdom and france uh, during the colonialist period uh, not only about spain but also about portugal also about uh, uh, countries like uh, netherlands and uh, uh, and belgium and germany so um Basically, I think that uh, a cumulative toll on uh, uh, humanity is close to one billion people. And uh, I'm talking about uh, statisticians with uh, whom I worked, top statisticians who calculated uh, before I wrote the book with Noam Chomsky on uh, Western terrorism uh, from... uh, Hiroshima to uh, drone warfare, uh, we did some calculations, and it doesn't think only include direct slaughter, but of course also diseases, famines that uh, uh, colonialism uh, unleashed. But still, it's close to one billion, and that's really, uh, it cannot continue like this. The, the, the Our planet cannot tolerate one group and one race of people which is acting with such barbarity and uh, such disregard for uh, human suffering. So uh, I don't, uh, I saw uh, Western Empire in action in uh, uh, on all continents. I heard the stories that uh, uh, people still remember from uh, uh, long ago and also from the recent history. Uh, it is terrible world uh, which uh, this Western uh, society had created and imposed on uh, on uh, on much of of the planet. That's why I think that uh, it's very important that things are changing, that uh, people are regrouping, that they are finally understanding what's going on, and opposition uh, is growing. That's why I find uh, alliance between Russia and China so important. That's why I think that Iran, uh, Iran's joining is important. And I uh, also strongly believe that uh, every country which uh, strives for independence and for a better life for its people and which is antagonized and attacked by the West, each and every country like this, like Syria or Venezuela, should be defended. What would you say to people who would argue, okay, I hear you on NATO and, and Western imperialism, but, you know, Russia and China... You know what? What business? I mean, there maybe they're a, a threat too. Is there a unique characteristic to the way Russia and China are 
going about their business elsewhere that, that's fundamentally different from the United States and, and Europe? Or is this just, uh, you know, a kind of a, a clash of two different kinds of empire? Well, it's definitely not a clash of two empires. It's just uh, what you see uh, Russia and China doing uh, in the rest of the world is defending its allies. It's uh, uh, it's uh, basically uh, bringing more and more countries to the sphere uh, of uh, which is uh, ready to stand against the only enemy of uh, our planet that we right now have, and it is the West. The biggest nation in the world, uh, in in Africa, is Nigeria where uh, approval rating of, of China by population is 87%. It's tremendous. And in no African country, this popularity goes below 50%. So uh, uh, in places like Kenya, where I used to live, people are actually demanding that Chinese uh, uh, Oh, government uh, and China builds uh, infrastructure that uh, the money is not given to the local government because there is fear that it will be corrupted. So China is trusted and uh, <clears throat> so is Russia. You never hear about uh, Russia is a mining uh, and oil giant. You never hear about Russia coming to some country and cleaning it out and overthrowing government there or uh, uh, throwing people to starvation. Also, China, I was working recently in Laos, uh, China's neighbor. Laos is a, a country with very few people, and it's a, as big as Thailand almost. It was bombed, carpet bombed to the ground by the West in, so, uh, in sidekick war to Vietnam War. It's, uh, it was called a secret war. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people died. It's still a minefield. Well, China came. And it's building railroads uh, now, uh, the high-speed railroads that will be connecting uh, 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 Laos with the rest of Southeast Asia and China too. And uh, they're building dams, they're building uh, uh, factories, training centers, everything. Once they come, they pay people the same wages as they pay their own people. A truck driver from Laos makes $1,200 driving truck for Chinese uh, construction company while the uh, uh, salaries in Laos are uh, I think around 50-60 dollars a month. They treat people the same as they treat their own people. Once they start building this infrastructure everything goes with it. Uh, schools, hospitals uh, and community learning centers, uh, uh, trade centers, uh, small uh, businesses, uh, everything. So Basically, China is spreading the knowledge uh, and it is uh, creating enormous amount of jobs. The, the reaction of the West, instead of uh, competing for hearts and minds of Laotian people, they are supporting absolutely toxic NGOs in Vientiane, the capital, which, whose purpose is only to basically discredit China. So you see in Vientiane all these weird people driving big four-wheel drives, uh, on behalf of the uh, of the Western governments, uh, and uh, doing nothing else than trying to scare uh, Laotian people and uh, antagonize, uh, uh, to create narrative, powerful narrative against the People's Republic of China. You identify not as a pacifist or a peacenik, but as a revolutionary. 
I, I also note that there's a, a famous book by Ward Churchill called Pacifism as, as Pathology. And, and it makes me wonder about uh, maybe your lament about uh, the West's failure to address the, uh, the sins of their governments. Um, do you think there's more to it? That to to our th- those failures than simply uh, a lack of good information, the you know, media brainwashing and so on. Is there a pathology that's interfering with our ability to do to do the right thing? Most definitely, I think the Western Western uh, public is actually co-responsible. It is not only capitalism or Western governments. Every country, inclu- including the United States of America. Uh, are actually uh, living very high life and the uh, people uh, in these countries are very privileged compared to other places of the world. So, uh, yes, I uh, fully understand that the United States is underclass. uh, United Kingdom, too, it has many poor people. We cannot deny it. But uh, it's very simple. When I was invited to Italian Parliament three years ago, I uh, told them that everything that European Union has is actually created on destruction and death and uh, plunder. I said I am absolutely against free education and free medical care, if that free education and medical care is only in Europe. Uh, As an internationalist, I am for free medical care and free education all over the world. So as they say in Cuba, everybody dances or nobody dances. It is clear to me that people do not want to know. They don't want to get involved. Peace what they call peace very often is uh, maintaining the privileges for the for their own cultures, for their own countries, for their own continents. People won't give up their cell phones to stop a Congolese genocide. Precisely. They never would do anything like that. And they would never say it either. It's all kind of, uh, it's uh, all assumed, it's all... Uh, um, uh, there, but it's never uh, openly described because uh, if you would uh, say it openly, then uh, you would actually have to take action, and or other people would take action. So it's all uh, uh, whitewashed. Uh, uh, people talk about peace, but what they uh, mean is uh, keeping the status quo because it's not a peace for the countries that live in absolute misery or that are forced to be occupied. Uh, it is peace for people who live in Toronto or. Uh, Washington or uh, Paris or London, uh, they want peace. Of course, they don't want bombs to fall on them, but on other people, bombs are falling, or uh, and it can be either concrete bombs or abstract bombs. So uh, it is. Uh, there are good people in peace movements. In I saw, for example, in Regina in Canada, very good. Uh, group of people, very dedicated group of people, and I'm sure they mean well. But uh, overall uh, obsession in the West with peace is overall obsession with keeping the status quo. I want to thank you very much for sharing your thoughts with our our listeners, and I wish you happy travels and uh, all the best. Thank you so much, and uh, I admire uh, global research, and uh, greetings to all the readers and listeners. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. That was journalist, novelist, and filmmaker Andrei Vulchik speaking to the Global Research News Hour on April 4th, 2019. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can listen to our programs every week on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and on partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. 
You can also download each episode from the website globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I'm series host, creator, and producer Michael Welch. Join us again next week.